You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 25th of June 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, Turkey's voters decide that we're all just going to have to get used to President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. My guests Michael Goldfarb and Quentin Peel will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including a large anti-Brexit demonstration in London. But how large does a demonstration need to be to matter? The EU grits its teeth as Italy unveils its ideas on dealing with immigration and... Despite being the busiest two-runway airport in the world, Heathrow's capacity constraints means it is falling behind its global competitors, impacting the UK's economy and global trading opportunities. Heathrow might be about to get even bigger, but which are our favourite and least favourite airports? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the journalist and broadcaster Michael Goldfarb and Quentin Peel, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and contributor to the FT. Welcome both. And we start in Turkey, which over the weekend voted by a convincing margin to extend Recep Tayyip Erdogan's tenancy in his absurd and vast presidential, indeed, compound in Ankara. President Erdogan won 53% of the vote, his outright victory sparing him the necessity of contesting a second round. It also means the Constitution of new powers narrowly approved in a referendum last year, all of which make Turkey's presidency an even more powerful office than it already was. Um, Quentin, in a, in a possibly uh, vain bid to get the week off to an optimistic start, is there any sense at all in which this is all terrifically good news? There was a very high turnout, which showed a very um, engaged Turkish population in the exercise. Okay. Um, on the other hand, uh, I fear that it does really play to uh, the sort of one-man, one-party rule that Erdogan clearly feels comfortable with. It was actually, when you come down to it, a pretty narrow... I mean, the country is very evenly divided, and so it's not going to be a comfortable situation. I think it was much more of a near-run thing than Erdogan expected. Well, Michael, actually, on, on that subject and on the uh, attempt to be optimistic about this, is it actually surprising, given his extraordinary dominance of the media, uh, his terrorising oppression and indeed locking up or chasing out of the country of much of his opposition, uh, his occupation of the bully pulpit of the presidency, that he only got 53%? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, when, when I think the precise number is 52.6. And when I saw that 52 figure, I thought, this is like Brexit, 52.48. And, and, and just to parse it down a, a little bit further before I answer the question, um, what was interesting to me is I did see some figures from the very large Turkish diaspora, particularly in Germany and France, and they were overwhelmingly voting for the AK party. They were voting for... Um, uh, Tayyip Erdogan, and it says something to me about how he projects what it means to be Turkish beyond the borders of Turkey, so that people who have, who are well settled in Western Europe would still vote for him. Um, I think that, that it, it's very, very interesting that in some ways it is, as you might have said, here's a positive. Um, Mr. Demirtas, who runs the HDP party, which is came out of the Kurdish um, liberation movement, got 8% of the vote. He's in prison. He was allowed to vote. 
apparently he, his fellow prisoners, 35 of them, voted at his prison. In America, if you're a prisoner, you're not allowed to vote. So um, in that respect, it's pretty much Turkey as we expect it. And I think, you know, looking ahead, what I don't quite follow is the biggest problem he faces, aside from some the economic problems, um, which aren't, which are there, is he has all this power and he has this conflict on his southern border. He has no one to, to gainsay him if he wants to mess around and mingle and play the dangerous games he's playing in Syria and in buying high-powered F-35 jets from the U.S. at the same time that he's buying Russian equipment. And all of this is going to come to a head and who's going to tell him no? I think that's where I'm going with this ramble. Um, Quentin, Michael made reference to the economic problems, uh, which are considerable. Turkey's economy has stalled. Uh, its lira, the currency, is tanking. Uh, your Turkish holiday will cost you roughly 20% less than it would have at the start of the year. Why hasn't that put a bigger dent in him? Uh, it's a very good question, because that was, I think, what I expected to make the difference. I think that given, look, given the enormous control he had of the playing field, I think Michael made the right point that it, it, it actually was a surprisingly close result, and that was the effect of the economy. I think the full effect of an economic downturn and of much sharper inflation may yet be to come through, and that's precisely why he called this election early. He could see that there was actually troubling times ahead economically, and he wanted to get in quick. So, in a way, you've got this curious mixture of a man who's introducing a much less democratic system. I mean, the new constitution does weaken all the checks and balances, uh, and yet at the same time, he's had to act in a in a rather um, sort of he, he's had to try and exploit democracy to make sure that he got back in. Um Michael, if you look at the map uh, of where Turks voted for what, it's it's actually quite familiar and quite transplantable to any number of other democracies. The, the coasts and the big cities voted in a particular way, the interior and the small towns voted in another. Is this just another part of the great and ongoing global struggle between the city and the country? I, I would say... Possibly, yes. Um, the southeast, the Kurdish area, voted for Demirtas, and in, in a sm it seems small on the map around the Bosporus in, in and around Istanbul. It, it voted for Inche. I'm sure I'm pr mispronouncing it. Every time I see it spelled, it reminds me of Paul Ince, the former English footballer. Um, I, I, I think there's an element of truth in that. In, and, and I also think, I mean, I, I've some time there, Quentin may know better than I, you know, there is this, the wealth that's come up in Turkey over the last couple of decades has bettered the lives of people who are basically very conservative and religious. And I think that this is his base. And I think they are deeply, deeply nationalist. And um, this is, you know, Antalya. This is the center of the country. I don't think it's necessarily peasants. I think it's like a lot of people in the middle, but also people who are socially conservative, and he is one of them. And there's a huge division between the those who still 
uh, believe in the secularist tradition of uh, of Ataturk and this new, much more religious symbol. And that's it's very deep and very bitter. And, and you know, what's interesting is that now that he's got this new term of office, he will be um, in charge of gearing up the celebrations for the 100th anniversary of Ataturk's revolution. And he will be taking on that mantle, but taking it on kind of in a heavily diluted way because secularism was the essence of the Ataturk, secular nationalism, was the essence of Ataturk. I also wonder, there's this thing, you point to the map, Andrew, and I think it's true in a lot of different countries. We are metropolitan elites. We are nowheres or, or wherever, whatever that is, anywheres. And because we, we do have considerable sway over the media we tend to think it's like us the world and i have a feeling that it's becoming more and more clear that the majority in the world are not as sophisticated as we like to think we are <laughs> well the well, revival of nationalism absolutely is surely that i mean and in turkey it's both turkish nationalism and also kurdish nationalism so you've got the two right well that does tee up nicely the next story which is uh, somewhat closer to home on saturday a crowd of perhaps 100,000 people marched in london demanding a new vote on brexit not a rerun of the first as such but a vote on whether or not to accept the terms of of the final Brexit deal, assuming such a thing is ever concluded. A pro-Brexit counter-demonstration attracted a few hundred people. Inevitably, attendees have both subsequently complained that what they deride as the MSM had not apportioned satisfactory coverage, but this prompted, as it always does, the question of whether a gathering of people is necessarily a story and what the qualifying size is. Um, Michael, assuming it was 100,000, which is the organisers' claim, and certainly judging by the photographs, it was a, it was a decent old turn up um is that a big deal does that necessitate headlines well it well in the, on this subject yeah maybe um and especially in in the run of news that that we've been in over the last couple of weeks where the conservative party has been trying to deal with its own rebels and people are trying to push hard as you know one deadline after another approaches in terms of having some sense of what brexit should look like, which we still don't know two years after the election. It's an anniversary worth celebrating and noting, and press should have been there. Um, I'm more concerned about whether it actually means a damn thing. You know, I, I am the unofficial 1968 correspondent <laughs> of a rival organization, BBC Radio. I've done a number of programs. I'm going to be in Brazil at the end of July talking about it. You know, look, going on a march is nothing. It's absolutely nothing. If you want to overturn something, you have to go, you have to find a better way of pressing on the powers that be. And if you go on a march and say, oh, we don't like this, they tried that with the war in Iraq, a million and a half people, it was quite extraordinary. Did it stop the policy? It did no. not. And did they turn out a million and a half ever again? No, they did not. And, although one of the speakers on the platform that day, Jeremy Corbyn, is now the leader of the Labour Party. But, you know, it's like marching in 1968 was in aid of a very specific thing. It was a tactic to achieve a goal. Now it's like, oh, we don't like this. We're going to go out and march. And then let's go have a drink at the pub. Or we'll go to, you know, Bob and Sue's Garden in Hampstead. I'm dealing in cliches there. And, 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 and have a barbecue afterwards and talk about how terrible Brexit is. 
I mean, Quentin, it does happen a lot. There are always marches about something. There are often people after them afterwards complaining that it didn't get enough coverage, to which I always rather think that if you, if you measure, I guess, the number of people who might go through the doors of Selfridges on a given Saturday morning uh, in Oxford Street, probably outnumbers pretty much every demonstration which is ever convened in London. Or, or you could argue that lower division football teams can still pull a bigger crowd than most political causes. But... 100,000 people is 100,000 people. It's no small change. But is even if you can turn out six figures, is it still an effective way of actually getting anything done in the modern context? Is now, is now sort of social media agitation more productive or is there still something about the spectacle of just large numbers of people in the streets? I think on its own, it's not enough, clearly. What Michael was saying earlier about uh, you need other things. You need much more targeted, specific lobbying of MPs. This Brexit insanity is not going to be reversed unless there is a swing in popular feeling quite a lot larger than it is at the moment and that puts the fear of God up specific members of parliament who actually say if we're out there voting for a bad deal or indeed allowing no deal to take place we're going to get clobbered we're going to get punished up till now I don't think members of parliament actually think feel that. But I think what a demonstration like this does is it brings home to people that this matter is not decided yet. And in fact, there are still very much two sides to the argument. Now, if that at least gets across. And after all, I mean, I was very struck. One of the major newspapers this morning, which I won't mention, had not a single line about it 24 hours after, hours after can, this. Can event. we take a wild guess as to which major newspaper that was? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's probably very predictable. They don't like the idea. But having said that, this was also very important, I think, to people who are wavering, who don't like the idea of Brexit, but have sort of said, oh, God, it's going to happen. Let's just get on with it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, is that, as I said, it's the second anniversary of the vote, and it's flown by, hasn't it? It really has, I, you know. And and I woke up the next morning. I did know that we would be spending the next two and a half years once she had, once Theresa May had invoked Article Fifty, for the next two plus years. See, I, I, all we would talk about, and it and it's really as tedious to to talk about it as it is to listen to. But I just want to pick up Quentin's point, which is. It's hard to lobby waverers on the conservative backbenches if after two years you still don't know what the what the hell they're, they're negotiating. You have no idea. And and we're told, there, I mean, there's a summit coming up. October has now got a circle around it as this is going to be the time when we'll really know what the outline of Brexit is. Bad deal or no deal because there won't be anything other. It's still going to be a huge fudge. And they'll, well, of course, because it's the EU. This is the, they're just, <laughs> and also because it's Britain. And also, <laughs> and also because it's Britain and, and, and fudging is what Britain does. But, yeah. uh, Quentin, the, what have you made, though, of the, the, the general messaging of uh, continuity remain? Because y you made the point earlier that the balance will have to shift enormously. I mean, politicians would need to run, be seeing opinion polls running at 65-35. Because the, the, night the, the nightmare scenario, surely, is you call another vote. Uh, and either, well, actually, the nightmare scenario will be another vote which wins by a smaller margin than the previous one. Um, they would need to be incredibly sure of themselves. But the Remain campaign as it is, do you think it is actually making any difference? Uh, 
I, I don't think we've seen... Yes, it's there. The very fact that it's there does matter. I mean, I actually believe there's somewhere between a 20 and a 30% chance of this thing not happening, precisely because, actually, not thanks to the Remain campaign getting its act together, it's thanks to the utter chaos that the government is in. It doesn't know where it's going, it has no answer to the Irish border problem, and business is finally starting to say... Uh, this is a nightmare. I mean, we're seeing it now with companies like BMW and Airbus and Siemens and so on, with the port of Dover screaming blue murder that then they can't manage to do this. We're finally seeing this happening. And another category, I mean, we're now told that actually the real plan that T Theresa May has is she's going to stay in the customs union and the single market for goods, but not for financial services. I can tell you, financial services are the single major contributors to the Conservative Party. If their financiers literally walk out the door, they're going to hurt. So there's an awful lot that could still go wrong for Brexit. Hey, Michael, you made the point earlier of the, the, the incredible tedium of this whole thing, which is, which is something that I do think the Remain campaign undersold during the campaign, if they just said this will suck the air out of literally everything for a decade. It is the most boring thing that could possibly happen. Um, Quentin mentioned the Irish border, which I, for one, am unpersuaded that most voters care about in the least. But do you think, just as a final quick thought, that if more and more businesses by which read more and more employers start saying, OK, we're, we're finished waiting around for you guys to figure this out, we're off, that that might actually start waking a few people up? Well, I think it will. I think that, um, you know, we talk about the Conservative Party and lobbying waverers on the Conservative backbenches. I mean, let's face it, business has has their ear much more than, you know, and any one of the 100,000 who, who were out marching in the street over the weekend. Um, and I should just add, this is slightly off topic, but um, Harley-Davidson, which mm -hmm. Donald Trump always trumpets as one of those American companies that's getting, getting a hard time because we don't have high tariffs on Mercedes-Benz cars, as, has announced it's moving its production, some production, out of America. These are the things that catch people's eyes at grassroots, I think. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Quentin Peel and Michael Goldfarb. Coming up next, EU leaders hope that roughly the millionth migration summit might finally be the one that cracks it. Monocle has bureau around the world in Tokyo, Hong Kong, Singapore, London, Toronto and New York City. In Tokyo, our bureau chief is Fiona Wilson. It's such a big city, but I think also it's just one of these very layered cities. Most weeks, there's something new to keep us interested. You know, either it's a new development or a you know really interesting new building, a new fashion brand. There's something about Tokyo. Once you're here and you live here, it gets more and more interesting. Hear from Monocle's editors and correspondents on the stories that matter and the places that matter every day on Monocle 24. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Michael Goldfarb and Quentin Peel. Now, no serious person disputes that the recent large-scale migration across the Mediterranean is a problem. However, plenty of non-serious people have made considerable political capital these past few years of playing it as an existential threat to various Western polities. In Italy, such opportunists now constitute the government and are therefore able to expect that their ideas on the subject be listened to. New Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte 
Conte made his pitch at the weekend at roughly the zillionth conclave of EU leaders convened to consider the matter. Um, Quentin, how much assumption of good faith should we extend Italy's new government on this score? It's really tough to get it right because Italy has a huge problem with migration and really we should far more should have been done to help Italy up to now as a result we've got in in power in Italy uh, at least half of the government who are viscerally opposed to immigration and are prepared to do some very unpleasant things about it which actually does uh, it, it it really does mean that Europe has been caught out by not getting on with it quicker. We're going to have to find a solution in Europe as a whole, which does help those frontier, frontline countries like Italy, like Greece, Malta, Spain, who are getting all the brunt of this. And yet that's precisely what all the northern countries don't want to do. They just want to force the problem back down to the geographic south. And let us not forget that Great Britain is actually if you like, the biggest offender of all in saying it's not our problem to hell it can stay all on the other side of the channel. Uh, Michael, leaving aside anything we may think about Italy's new government, do they have a case when they say that because of the geographical reality of the, the situation, they and Greece and Spain have had to wear the brunt of this and the rest of Europe has not been sufficiently helpful? They, they absolutely have a case. They had a case before this particular government came into office. And it's also true in Greece and it's true in Spain. It, this is not a new problem. It's been, people have been coming across, particularly from Libya, since the collapse of the regime. Or via Libya. Via, yeah, via Libya. You know, it was, and, you know, look, I have such a good memory. I mean, there was a moment about a decade ago when people were getting in boats, rowboats, um, not just in Morocco and crossing the Straits of Gibraltar, but they were getting in little boats in, in the Cape Verde Islands and coming around the rest of Africa and landing in the Iberian Peninsula that way. And every time you have these routes, they get, uh, there's no suppressing it. Um, by this point, what should really be done is there should be a cooperative council at set up between the EU and African or the African Union and they should be have well along the way in, in creating a plan to deter people from you know trekking through the Sahara to the Mediterranean ports trying to get in when it's not going to happen and when thousands of people are dying every year I'm happy to uh, be a mediator for this because it really is it seems to me that that politicians both in Africa and in Europe simply aren't getting to grips with this problem and it's a global problem and you know it needs to be addressed because the fact that it hasn't been has cre has created in Europe at least the conditions for the rise of this kind of nationalistic in the case of the current government in Italy almost quasi-fascistic approach to dealing with the other. I mean, when Matteo Salvini wants to have a register of Roma people, now they aren't coming from Africa, 
But that's a knock-on effect of the unsolved problem of what you do when you've got 100, 200,000 people arrive over a period of several years. Uh, Quentin, at, at what point, though, do other European politicians start getting a bit nervous about what has happened in Italy, where, rightly or wrongly, the electorate has demonstrated uh, again that they would just prefer it, however impossible the wish may be, that none of these people came at all? I think they're extremely worried right now. I think they see this as a huge issue uh, that could e easily rebound on, on any of them. I mean, you've got, clearly, um, you've got uh, Angela Merkel in Germany, where her, her closest ally in the government is the one who's actually calling her to account on the issue. But they've got this alternative for Deutschland, who's a far-right party, in 92 people in the German Bundestag. So it's a worry for all of them. Macron, you name them. OK, well, finally tonight, uh, as if in acknowledgement that British politics can only cope with one stupefyingly tedious issue at a time, Parliament was today due to vote and vote in favour on a third runway for Heathrow, despite the fact that both the Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary, to name but two, have previously campaigned against the expansion. This is, of course, very far from confirming that any such thing will get built before the sun dies, but it is a convenient hook for a discussion of favourite and least favourite airports and what Heathrow might learn from. Them. Uh, I will start. My favourite airport, I think, in the world is Adelaide. It's a lovely airport, beautifully done. It's, Anybody think he was Australian? It's, te it's technically an international airport. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, it's it's a quick way out of Adelaide, um, which is a joke that cruel people might make. But it's it's a nice airport. At uh, least favourite, the, the inevitable choice of, of JFK, which is an absolute slum of which New York City and indeed the United States and Western civilization should be thoroughly ashamed. Uh, Michael, your choices. My choice for, for favourite is, I'm not sure I get to any favourites because you know, I mean, I thought the Shanghai airport was pretty nifty the one time I flew into Shanghai. Uh, this was a, I guess it's a Richard Rogers designed enormity. But I'm with you, man. I fly to my, my native city and I just, my heart crushes. I, I, it blows my mind because America can make nice airports. They're, they exist. Minneapolis airport is nice. Chicago's all right. Yeah, no, yeah, Atlanta's okay once you figure out where everything is. Though that took me about twenty attempts. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, well, you know, what was the big infrastructure improvement? A three and a half billion dollar extension of the subway line. It was three and a half billion dollars, like a mile and a half of track. That, that's a, that's how it works, right? The union guys, they did all right. It would have been cheaper to put everybody in helicopters from Manhattan, <laughs> exactly, like, exactly. literally. Um, Quentin, do you have a favourite and least favourite? Well, I think my two favourites are somewhere between Shannon, which, given that it's much less busy than it used to be, is just a delight to go in and out. It, it the, Ad the Adelaide of Ireland. <laughs> and you can pre-immigrate to JFK. You can do all your immigration unpleasantness good to thought, New York. Good thought, actually. Yeah, so it's thought. wonderful from that point of view. My other is, uh, maybe predictably, Tegel Airport in Berlin, which is such a nice small airport just in a circle so you check in you go through security and you're at your gate in 20 meters it's fantastic Actually, which does remind me a bit of city airport here in london which is like a special designated airport for yeah. grown-ups yeah <laughs> and so the horrid airports the ghast airports are the huge ones which appalls me therefore that we're talking seriously about making heathrow which is already five airports effectively into sort of a, almost a sixth um but uh, that shiramatevia in moscow 
Tesco was pretty ghastly that in its awful. day. I do remember when actually one splendid new German airport was built. The last greenfield site in Europe was Munich Airport. And one of my colleagues went down to the opening and he said, it's amazing, it's gleaming, it's wonderful, but it's like a human pinball machine. You go down these endless corridors. That's what's dreadful about a big airport. I, I, I do think that sometimes we dump on Heathrow a bit much because I find Gatwick to just be a terror for me. I, I find, I, in fact, all the London airports, Stansted was meant to be an improvement and it hasn't been. It's been allowed to turn into a slum. Um, it is a slum, unfortunately. I don't know why, why the Anglo-American duality cannot get it together on its major points of entry is, is actually a great mystery to me because you'd think that Dominating the world's culture as we do, you know, we are the lingua franca. We have the, the the hub of global finance. You would think that we'd be able to organize the basic transport infrastructure to get the world into New York and London, but seem unable to. I, th I think it's actually the fact that the world keeps trying to arrive in JFK and Heathrow that may be the problem. <laughs> Again, Dallas-Fort Worth, an American airport, is lovely. There's lots of stuff to do. You can find things. It looks nice. But can we please get rid of these ghastly duty-free sections which are like Ikea gone mad trying to wind you like a snake out of your way? My, my favourite parts of especially of airside duty-free are those, those, those shops which sell luggage. Like... <laughs> Too late. <laughs> who, who, who are the people who've arrived with armfuls of loose clothing thinking, I knew I'd forgotten something. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Quentin Peel and Michael Goldfarb, thank you for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Megan Atkinson. Our studio manager was George McDonough. More music next at 1900. It's The Culture Show with Robert Bound, and I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.